When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. A stolen violin, a missing sister, and a house suited for murder. This is Chapter 205 of WCBS Author Talks. I'm Lisa Cherkovich, and while that sounds like the plot of one great novel, it's actually a snapshot of the three books we're featuring this week. We've got the debut from violinist and music teacher Brendan Slocum. We dare you to try and resist the lure of Stephanie Robel's new novel featuring a modern-day cult. And then Rhea Fry shares how one of her biggest fears made its way into her latest domestic drama. A violin worth tens of millions of dollars goes missing in The Violin Conspiracy, the debut novel from musician and music teacher Brendan Slocum. But his story is so much more than a basic whodunit. It also tackles racism, elitism in classical music, Americanism, even what it's like to grow up and be different from those in your family in every way. He shares how the pandemic led to us being able to read his story. During the pandemic, uh, as, as a professional violinist, you know, my all the wedding gigs and receptions and recitals and concerts had all been canceled. And I really didn't have anything to practice for. So motivation was really low. And I was sitting and eating the entire time. So I figured instead of sitting here getting fat, I should probably put some of these stories down that I've been carrying around since I was nine years old. Right. And I know that some of the experiences that Ray uh, goes through in this book mirror your own. Was it cathartic to put these stories down? Was it painful? Was it did you did you get a laugh at something? All of the above. I laughed. I was moved to tears and it was a cathartic experience. Um, just carrying these stories around and, and, and just the idea that people were going to get to uh, hear and read about these experiences that really took place and, and have them validate me, um, you know, as a person, you know, when, when I would talk about these things. And when I was younger, people would say, ah, stuff like that doesn't happen. You're exaggerating. That's not really true. And it's it's really good to be able to put it down on paper and people to go, wow, you went through that. OK. And you, you turned out OK. All right. And tell me where the the mystery stolen violin part comes in, because I think some people might expect to read a story that would be not necessarily a little bit more serious because this book does tackle some serious issues. But this whole idea of tracking down a missing violin. Right from the beginning, first chapter, Ray discovers that his violin has been stolen and the hunt is on from the very first chapter. You know, and there's so many suspects, uh, including his family, who just wants him to sell it and split the money. 
or his uh, his arch nemesis, the Marx family, who are the descendants of the slave owners that used to own Ray's great great grandfather. Uh, you know, they stake a claim to it. They say that he stole it from them, and it's rightfully theirs. There's just a plethora of people who could have taken the instrument. And we should know the violin isn't any ordinary violin. And I think if, if if there are people out there who know nothing about classical music, they've at some point heard of what a Stradivarius is. Oh, yeah. One of the mo- probably the most valuable violin in the world. There's only like two, a little over 200 of them left in existence. And uh, if you've got one, you've got a treasure. And um, it's it's that highly sought out. Sought- Highly sought. People really want to get their hands on them. And if they do, you know, you'll probably never see it again. (laughs) In your author's note, I'm skipping all the way to the end now, you write that music is for everyone. Can you share with us what that means to you? Oh, 100%. Um, it's not just for people, classical music in particular, but music is, is not just for people in a certain zip code or with a certain bank account or a certain skin tone. It is for everyone. It can be enjoyed by everyone. And it, it's a life-saving force that I don't think anyone should be denied just because they look a certain way or because people think that you're not going to be able to appreciate it. Um, it. It saved my life. It is one of the strongest life saving forces available. And I don't want anyone to be denied that I think it would be a crime. It's crazy to me that, you know, people have these discussions that musical talent is innate. It's something you're born with and you just have this affinity for. And and yet those same people who believe that will deny someone access to it because of the way they look or where they grew up. That is a sad reality. It really is. Um, I, I think just uh, for some people, I really think it is a God-given gift and, and their talent should be nurtured. And for anyone to deny someone the right to not only experience music, but to you know just enjoy it and be able to make music and to make a career out of it, it really is sad. That's why I want people to understand that it's for everyone. You know, if you live in the inner city, you can still enjoy Mozart. You live in in the back hills. You can still enjoy Beethoven. You can still get something from it. It it is for everyone. And I know mentorship plays a large role in that. Can you tell us how that fits into, you know, um, having music be accessible to everyone, but also it plays a large role in this book? Absolutely. Um, in the in the story, Ray's primary mentor is uh, his teacher, Dr. Janice Stevens, who I modeled after my own violin teacher, Dr. Rochelle Vetter Huang. That was really easy for me to do. She taught me how to play the violin. She taught me how to teach. And um, she was also extremely encouraging when I felt like I just couldn't do it. And I just felt like everyone was just down on me and this wasn't for me. Everyone was right when they said, no, you shouldn't be doing that. You know, she gave me the push and the encouragement that I needed. And the same thing with Ray in the story. He felt defeated until, you know, he talked to his teacher and she gave him all the encouragement he needed to be successful. And this is something you do nowadays as well, right? Because you teach music. I am. I am a music teacher. I teach violin and piano lessons, and I I try to be that mentor for my students. I'm extremely honest with them. You know, if they do something well, I will shout it to the moon that it's great. But if it's not good, I will also let them know that. And sometimes it may seem harsh, but it's a good way for them to understand and differentiate between honesty and just being mean. I'm not being mean. I'm just being honest. And I'm being honest because I want you to get better. 
I think a lot of people have a preconceived notion of what classical music is. And for whatever reason, they know right off the bat that they're not going to like it. But I know you have some tips of of how people can learn to love classical music. Where should somebody start if they want to, quote unquote, get into it? I think for, for me, people should go into classical music with an open mind. Don't have any preconceived notions. Don't think that it's going to be boring. Don't think that, oh, this slow me. No, no, no. Just go into it with an open mind. And if you do just a little bit of background research, you'll see that some of these composers are they're they're like normal people. They were going through, you know, same things that we go through. When when Beethoven was writing, you know, his symphonies, he couldn't hear. He couldn't hear a note. And it's just like, wow, how does someone who couldn't hear put something like this down on paper? What what must have been going through his mind? And you can actually get a, a, a much more clear picture of what it is that you will be experiencing when you go into it with an open mind. I would start with, you know, something light like Vivaldi or Handel and then move to some of the bigger, uh, more extensive works like Beethoven or Dvorak. And I, I think it'll surprise a lot of people. You know, some of the rhythms, you're like, oh, wow, this is cool. Hmm, if you put a beat to that, that would be really cool. There's some really, 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 really great music out there. All right. So what's scarier, Brendan, putting this book out into the world or performing the toughest piece you've ever had to perform in front of a, a huge audience? <laughs> wow. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, the performance because, you know, with the book, you can write another book. And if people don't like it, OK, I can, I can change a couple of things. You get one shot at that performance and that's it. And I definitely had those moments where I wish I could have done it again. And some of that is, is actually echoed in the book. And you'll you'll see it was one of those moments that just made you just want to just put it down and quit and not even try again. But uh, fortunately, Ray has a good mentor that uh, steers him in the right direction. But the performance aspect is definitely the most scary. And you also have a second book that's coming. Is it going to be also set in this world of classical music? It does have a um, classical music theme. Just really quickly, uh, America's preeminent composer, this guy's bigger than Beethoven, bigger than Bach, bigger than Mozart and Brahms. His 150th anniversary is coming up, and his family, who runs his foundation, has hired a musicologist to do some research. In his research, the musicologist discovers that this guy may not have written any of his music, and he may have appropriated it from a black woman who today we know may be living with autism, and the family will stop at nothing to keep this information from becoming public. This sounds like another great book. In the meantime, readers can pick up The Violin Conspiracy. Brendan Slocum, thanks for your time today. Thank you so much. Author Stephanie Robel likes to explore the darker side of why people do what they do. In her debut novel, Darling Rose Gold, it was a mother who purposely made her daughter sick. In her second thriller, titled This Might Hurt, she turns her attention to the bond between sisters and the allure of cults. The twisty novel will seriously have you questioning whether or not you'd be able to resist the pull of a charismatic leader promising a better life. She tells us a little bit more about the story. We're not giving anything away by saying this book centers around a kind of cult. We have a charismatic leader, unquestioning followers, and of course there's an outsider who thinks things are a little fishy. Tell us a little bit more about the story. Sure. So um, I'll talk about two of the main characters, which are these sisters, Natalie and Kit Collins. 
And when the story starts, um, they haven't spoken in six months because Kit's been away at this cult called Wisewood. Well, it's positioning itself as a self-improvement retreat. Um, and so the, one of their rules is that, you know, you can't speak to any outsiders for six months while you're working on your program. Um, and so Natalie is, of course, not happy that Kitten's left to do this program. Um, but what really sets her on fire is she gets an email from a Wisewood account saying, you know, would you like to tell your sister what you've done or should we? And so Natalie starts to panic. She's been keeping this secret from her sister for some time. And so she races off to Wisewood to come clean with Kit and also to hopefully bring her home. And she runs smack dab into the middle of Maine in the winter. Yeah, yeah. Not exactly the most welcoming time to go. (laughs) So you went from exploring mother-daughter relationships in your first book into exploring the bond between sisters this time around. And I think any woman out there who has sisters will immediately connect with the relationship dynamics that that you put forth in this book. Oh, thank you. I mean, I have two younger sisters. So so yeah, when I was deciding, you know, I knew I, I knew this first two perspectives um, of a cult member and a cult leader were going to be in the book, but it wasn't until later that I added the outsider perspective, which is Natalie. Um, and in deciding who that person should be, I wanted it to be someone who would feel more obligated to run in there than, let's say, a friend, but not so dedicated as a parent. And so a sibling really felt like the right balance between those. And, you know, I went with a sister because I have sisters. I don't have any brothers. Um, and so that relationship is one I've known very, uh, very intimately my whole life. And from one older sister to another, of course, it's the older sister who <laughs> feels that she has to jump in there and rescue the the younger one who maybe isn't being responsible. It's a bit of a trope, certainly, that, you know, like the older sibling goes in and does this thing. But I think it's a trope for a reason. You know, certainly in my own experience, it was always, you know, you're the older sister. It's your job to make sure they're okay. Like you're supposed to be the, you know, the mature one, the protective one, whatever. And so, you know, I I think from my experience, like a lot of older siblings feel that way. Um, And so, yeah, I just wanted to portray that in the story. Now, this idea or the practice of mentalism is kind of central to the story. What sort of research did you did you have to do? Is there anything that surprised you as you kind of went down that road? Yeah, you know, that was a really interesting challenge. Um, I knew who that character was in the present day, but I wanted to know how she got that way. Um, And so I just kept going further and further back in her history. And mentalism is is quite interesting, I think. You know, it's, it's this kind of mix between magic and psychology. And, you know, psychology is already something I've been fascinated in my whole, you know, fascinated by my whole life. Um, But yeah, it's if you if you look at practitioners of it, you know, whether it's David Blaine or Darren Brown in the UK, just as two examples, um, there's such a charisma involved and such a salesmanship involved, which I think is really interesting. And actually that, you know, brought ties back to portraying someone with Munchausen by proxy. I didn't I, I didn't realize that at the outset, but this sort of um charisma and ability to make people believe whatever you want was actually a a surprising theme that came up again in the writing. Uh, So so yeah, that was that was an interesting challenge. I think when people pick up a book that they know is going to be about cults, they go into it thinking that I could never be one of those people that would that would get sucked in. I'd see right through it from the start. I would know I was being played. 
But after reading your book and seeing the people who are involved in Westwood and who de- decide to stay for the long haul, you start to realize that, you know, it's it's not that hard to, to fall into. Yeah, thank you for saying that, because that was exactly what I set out to do in the book. Um, I think, you know, the more research I did, because, you know, I had those own biases. Like when I started, I was like, what kind of person joins a cult? Like, you know, there's so many alarming warning signs. But then the more you dig into it, you realize, well, those warning signs aren't there at the beginning. You know, nobody's saying, hey, would you like to sign up for this cult and wear this crazy uniform and do these weird rituals? It starts out as a social group or a religious organization or whatever. And it's the only commonality I found with all cult members in real life cults that I researched is a search for something deeper for, you know, a higher purpose, whatever. There's something lacking in your life. And I thought, oh, wow, that's like something any of us could relate to at some point in our lives. You know, we just didn't join the wrong group. Um, And so I'm really if there's any takeaway I want readers to have, it's to kind of destroy that notion of like, oh, this could never happen to me. People who join are naive or foolish or whatever. Um, because, you know, based on the things that I've read, you know, memoirs from survivors, et cetera, that's just not the case. You know, in addition to, to that being a takeaway, it's also such a great fun read with with more than a couple of twists in there. And I'm going to start I'm going to stop the tape because before I let you go, I need to talk to you about that final twist uh, on that last page. because <laughs> <laughs> you, you need to tell me what happened. You mean? Well, we've been chatting with Stephanie Robel. The book is This Might Hurt. And if you want to know about that twist that we just finished talking about, which I'm not going to let anybody hear because I don't want to give it anything away, they have to go and pick up the book. Thanks for your time today, Stephanie. Thanks so much for having me, Lisa. Sometimes... Characters inspire authors, a voice in their heads that just won't quit and they have to write their stories down. Other times it's a setting like mysterious woods or an abandoned hospital. For thriller writer Rhea Fry, it was a house that belonged to a writer friend that got the ball rolling for her new domestic drama. Your book, Secrets of Our House, it's not so much that the house itself physically holds secret, but the people living within its walls most definitely do. But you have to tell me, what came first, this incredible story or the equally impressive setting? Setting, 100% setting. So this book is very different than my previous books. It's, it's way more of a drama. And it's different because this house, this black house that is the setting of this book is an actual real house of a friend of mine. Um, her name is Emily Carpenter. She's a gothic suspense writer. And she invited me to her house a couple of years ago on a book tour. And I thought it was just going to be a normal house. <laughs> and I pull through these black gates and there is just the most beautiful, sprawling black and glass house in the middle of the woods And I stepped through her front door and I was like, this is the perfect place for a murder. Um, And there's no murder in my book. But as, you know, suspense writer, she just started laughing and was like, yeah, this this is a good setting. But I was so taken with that house that I wanted to create a story around it. So that's what I decided to do. It's a good thing she is a suspense writer and she gets it because I think anybody else 
probably would have been a little bit insulted if, exactly, uh, if no. you walked in and told them, this is a great place for a murder. <laughs> exactly. We ended up having a wonderful conversation about it. Um, and that's only writers, I think, in this genre will get that. But it was it was really fun. Now, the, the, the story itself is one of survival, both of relationships. We have a marriage on the rocks. We have a, a mother and a teenage daughter who are butting heads. But it's also one of actual lives because you put your characters through their paces in, in this book. Yes, yes. And I think that's just what I'm interested in writing about. I want to write about very flawed characters. So I think the main character, Desi, she's not overly likable, but I think, you know, some women specifically can relate to her. And I really love seeing the resilience of characters, what they can go through, what they can deal with. Um, And in this book in particular, there are a couple characters that go through, literally go through the ringer, both physically and emotionally. Um, but I love to see that evolution of a human and, and just see, you know, this is where they start. This is where they end up and, and what they can withstand. So can we talk about the extreme situations of yes. this book? Because I thought that this particular wildlife encounter that you tell was going to be the end of it because I figured, oh, there's no way there's going to be something that's going to top this. But you do. <laughs> and- <laughs> Have you always been interested in this kind of extreme survivalism? You know, it's so funny. So I'm, I minored in psychology in college and then um, have just always been interested in the human condition and how we used to know how to survive. We used to hunt and kill our own food. We used to live outside. We used to know how to live off the land. And I think now in a world of technology and hyper distraction and comfort where everything can be done with a press of a button that we've really forgotten how to survive and how to be truly, truly human. So I wanted to explore that on the page in a couple of really intense situations. And I, you know, I have always loved the outdoors. I come from, you know, a family who we used to go camping and hiking all the time. And as I've grown up, you know, I've, I've kind of done that less and less. I go hiking all the time, but I have always dreamed of kind of living in the woods (laughs) in some sort of house and wondering like, could I, would I know what to do if I was faced with you know, a bear, there is a a bear attack in this, in this book. And would I know what to do if I was stranded somewhere? And I think so many of us wouldn't know what to do. So it was fun to create a younger character, Jules, who's 17. She turns 18 in the book. She's a bit of a survivalist. Um, But to show a young woman with that skill set and knowing what to do and knowing how to survive, because I feel like less and less people are learning those skills and and trading them for, you know, skills behind the computer or stuff that's going to make us money and not necessarily help us if we were ever put in that situation. I have to tell you, after reading this book, I kind of want to look up a few classes to know know what to do. Exactly. And I've always been, when I was growing up, I was kind of the nurse in the family. Like if someone got hurt, I would like love to tend to them and and just take care of them. So I've always really been interested in, you know, the EMT world, being a paramedic, just knowing, knowing what to do 
if and when something happens. Um, a bear though is that that's kind of one of my biggest fears is just like facing, <laughs> facing a bear and, and knowing what to do or, or God forbid something terrible happening. Um, so I love, I love playing out some of my worst case scenarios on the page. It helps me work through it mentally as well. On the relationship side of things, we have this age old tale of a mother thinking she knows what's best for her teen daughter. I think if there's any woman out there who hasn't had that kind of relationship with her mom, she's very lucky. <laughs> but yeah, I agree. This isn't the first time you've explored like maternal relationships in your books. What, what draws you to these kinds of relationships? Yeah. You know, I think um, just being a mother myself, I have a nine-year-old daughter and um, this was my first time writing a teenage, uh, a teenager and a teenage relationship with her mother. And I really, you know, of course, pulled from my own memory. Uh, I had a very, I had a very young mother though. And Oh my goodness, did we butt heads um, all the time. And and much like the character in this book, you know, she's, Jules is very self-assured. She knows what she wants to do. She knows what type of life that she wants to live. And her mother thinks that she knows best. And having my own daughter now, and she is the most primal, feral, <laughs> wild <laughs> imaginative girl who doesn't want to do anything the way anyone else does. She is not interested in societal rules, social norms. She just really does beat to her own drum. And I have to constantly remind myself that this is her life. And it's, it's not, I think as parents, we draw from our own experience, like, oh, well, this is what I did. So of course, this is what you're going to do. Or, you know, we, we impose our will so often on children, on our teenagers, even on, on adults. And I, I love exploring that because I feel like it's such an issue um, between, especially between mother-daughter. I mean, what a what a tense, complicated relationship that can be. As a mother, you may say, well, I'm not going to, I'm going to do everything different from the way my mom did it. Yes. Because I don't want to, I don't want to have that happen the same way. And yet history usually has a way of repeating itself. It really does. I mean, it's so funny because, you know, again, I had a young mom. There wasn't a, a ton of structure. It was a little chaotic and wild. And I craved structure as a kid. And I craved discipline. And I was a great student. And then so with my daughter, you know, she she doesn't want any of that stuff. She could care less about, like, academics and following rules and all of that. And I find myself often asking like, oh my God, I, am I my mother? Am I turning into my mother? Like what, what is happening? It's just, it is so interesting how history tends to repeat itself. And the adult relationship in the book, it's, it's something a lot of people go through it. You know, it's, it's trying to figure out if a couple has reached the end of the road and you go through a lot of emotions and a lot of soul searching when it comes to Dizzy and her husband. Definitely. I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting. The start of this book, you know, a marriage is on the rocks. And so Desi's, you know, they're basically falling out of love. They're probably already out of love. And then her daughter is the mirror to that where she's falling in love. So I, I wanted to play with that a bit, but I think a lot of people who've been in long-term partnerships can relate to, you know, as time goes by, as, as you fall into your roles and, and you stop seeing your partner 
for who they really are. You're, you're seeing them as who you think they are and reacting to them instead of interacting with them. You know, things can get, can get kind of stale. Um, and I don't know, I love, love, love writing about marriages and the ups and downs of relationships. And again, I think it's something we can all relate to, especially if you've been with someone for a long time. So I know you've just put this book out into the world, but what's next for you? Yes. So this is actually my last book with my publisher and I've written uh, quite a different book. It's, it's more women's fiction. It's very emotional. It's called the other year and I'm finishing up edits on that and then we will be pitching it um, and seeing what happens. Hopefully getting that out into the world next. It has to be exciting and terrifying at the same time. It is. So I run a business for writers who want to get published. And, you know, for the first time in a long time, I'm in the same position as them where I'm like, I'm a kind of, you know, I have an agent, but I'm a free agent in terms of not having a home yet. So it is, it's thrilling, but it's, it is a scary, <laughs> scary <laughs> place to be. There are people out there who have a book in them or they're working on a book. What's your biggest piece of advice to those folks who haven't gotten to that point where they're, where they're published yet? Yes. Learn about the business before you get into it. So with our clients, we work a lot on figuring out what the writer's goal even is and what success looks like to them. And that will often dictate what publication path they take. So everyone wants the agent. Everyone wants the big book deal. But sometimes when you start really digging into that process and what the business is actually like, a lot of people discover, you know what? No, I don't want to do that. Self-publishing sounds great to me. So I think really spending that time defining success understanding your goals, picking your publication path, but then understanding how it works. This is an industry that's so romanticized. We don't talk about money. We don't talk about how it all works. We don't know how to read contracts. Um, so really, really dissecting the business, asking someone if you don't understand it, because your book is a product to sell and this is a business. And if you want to make a career in it and at it, you have to know how it works. Great advice. You're out with a great book, Secrets of Our House. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, we're introduced to a real-life woman who saved herself and hundreds of other women from the Auschwitz concentration camp just by staying true to who she was. If you aren't already following us on Twitter and Instagram, what are you waiting for? Find us at WCBS 880 Books. Until next time, I'm Lisa Cherkovich.